You ever seen those uh, in colouring books, those things that, or different activity books, it says, what's wrong with this picture? And you'll see a picture and it'll have like a fish up in the sky and a bird under the water and things like that. And the kids have to then uh, circle those things that are wrong in the picture. Well, I want to ask you this. I'm going to read something to you and maybe think about what's wrong with this picture. This is an article from a couple of months ago. It was in the news in, in, a, in America. Punches were thrown and chairs were toppled inside the Greater Bellevue Baptist Church in Macon Monday night after a disagreement about the pastor's future escalated into a full-on brawl. Church trustees hired three Bibb County Sheriff deputies to attend the meeting which, during which the congregation was set to vote on whether Pastor David Stevens would remain as pastor. Several of the members of the congregation took turns to speaking but it didn't take long for things to get out of hand. I can't handle this. This is church, though. They're overdoing it, though, said one man as he was videoing this on his phone that night. A woman came to the microphone. Us not having a pastor of all, is that going to make the church better or worse? Worse, the man taking the video said. We want Pastor Stevens. He's a big help to the community. Though They tripping, whatever that means. Um, A deputy waved people away from the podium, saying one at a time, if you keep talking... You won't be able to vote, a man told, at the podium told 150 people in the church. Deputies could see that the members were getting irate and that this meeting was starting to take a turn for the worse, the deputy noted in his incident report. A little more than 20 minutes into the 35-minute video, the church decorum decayed in a matter of seconds. Deputies called for backup. Young men threw punches. Folks shoveled each other over. Chairs had been knocked over. At the blow of the whistle, everyone left the church. The fight dissipated about 8.40 p.m. The deputies' report mentioned there was an altercation involving a few different church members, but deputies were unable to determine the primary aggressor and unable to recontact parties involved once the crowd dispersed. No one was at the church Tuesday afternoon and the doors were locked. Attempts to reach Pastor Stevens for comment were unsuccessful. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> Plenty. Uh, we can we can laugh at that, but that is pretty serious, isn't it? How could that happen in a church? You know, you could imagine that perhaps happening at a in a at a pub or a footy club or something like that when people get a bit irate. But uh, in a church, who'd have thought? And yet, James at the start of this is talking about that sort of situation. Well, maybe not fisticuffs and punches, but he's using from some pretty strong words and. When James is talking about that, you wonder, this letter, of course, was written by James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, actually half-brother to our Lord Jesus Christ, um, mother and father Mary, of course, Jesus, mother Mary, father God. Um, but we know that in this letter that he's writing, he's writing it to believers who've been scattered out because of persecution all around the countryside. And he's writing to not only to encourage them about having faith in trials, but to challenge them about where their faith really is. These are people who have a lot of Old Testament Bible knowledge. They know the word of God, and yet there's a problem with the way that they are living it out. And we've been, as we've been going through this letter to James, we've been examining that. Uh, he, particularly in chapters 2 and 3, he's been talking about the discrimination they had when someone comes into the church that uh, they would welcome the rich man and say, come and sit up here, and the poor man, they just say, you go down the back. And 
He said, you're not supposed to act like that. You know, that's putting one person over another. That's valuing one over another. And God loves all people. Everybody's made in the image of God. He says, you, you are not fulfilling that royal law of loving your neighbour as yourself. And then we realised that he talked about the way that your faith acts out in your works. Yes, we're saved by faith, but that faith needs to demonstrate itself in works, not uh, because not to uh, get us saved, but because we have been saved. The natural response of faith is works. And he mentions there about even saying to someone, you know, oh, you're, you're without food. Well, bless you, mate. You know, that's fine. Hope you do well, but not actually doing anything about it. And so he challenges them about that. We came to some pretty um, challenging passages in chapter 3 about the tongue and, and uh, very, uh, very, much, very convicting about how we use our words and our tongue and our speech. And then last week we looked at wisdom, two types of wisdom. There's the wisdom that is from above, that is godly wisdom, and the fruit of that is peace and gentleness. And then we looked at the fruit, uh, the, the wisdom that is from below. In other words, the, how the world acts on it. He says that's actually devilish. It's like it's all about me and what I want and not focused on others. Well, chapter 4 almost follows on from that because that sort of thinking of uh, me and everything I want produces these sorts of fights within churches. And as I said, we don't normally hear about something this severe in church, but, you know, Often churches do fight, and sometimes they fight over the smallest of things. I, I was reading on the internet another article that was, uh, that, uh, was there. It was 25 different, and I'm not going to go through all of them, 25 different things that people in churches have argued over. And they, this uh, author asked people to send in some of their experiences, and he put 25 that he thought were interesting and amusing. There was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. There you go. There was a a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer, a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, whether a black one or a brown one, whether two drawers, three drawers or four drawers. This is pretty serious stuff, you know. A church argument to vote and decide whether the clock in the worship centre should be removed, business meetings and arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two meetings to resolve this. Two different churches reported fights over type of coffee in the churches. This is a, probably more an American thing, but in one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In another church, they moved, simply moved to a stronger blend. Mem- members left the church over that, believe it or not. A major conflict when the youth borrowed a crockpot that had not been returned or, uh, for years and a, an argument whether the church should be allowed to have deviled eggs at their fellowship lunches. Several church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and split. A fight over whether to sing happy birthday each week or not. Okay. Well, we sing it once a month. We're going to sing it this to the end of today. We'll give happy birthday greetings to people. But they sound trite, don't they? Just little things. I've heard it said that you know churches have split over the colour of the carpet, but the reality is it's never about the colour of the carpet, the crock pot, all those things. They are just a, an outward manifestation of what's going on inside. Things are brewing between people. Behind the scenes, they've been going on for a long time, and this is how it manifests itself. So, yes, they're funny, but they're also serious because what we realise is that it's showing that there is animosity amongst believers. And this is what James is talking to this 
these believers as he sends this letter out to them. I, I kind of wonder when they got this letter. You know, in those days, it, that was, it was written probably on some parchment and this letter uh, was probably a circular letter. It may have been more, multiple copies, but more likely a circular letter that went out and was passed around the churches. And you imagine you're going to get this letter from the great church leader, uh, James, uh, and you're really looking forward to it. And you think, great, he's going to give us all this great teaching and doctrine and things that we need. And then you come to this sort of stuff and it's like, ooh, ow, oh, that kind of hurts. We have to remember this isn't just James's word. This is God's word as well. God gave James the words to write. And he is, as we said last week, it's like he's pulling up a chair, sitting down and saying, look, we need to talk. There's some things that are going on and I, I want you to understand what's behind them and there's things you need to think about in your life and, and change. And uh, so when he's writing to this, he's talking about conflicts within churches. But uh, you and I know that we could apply what we hear today and the principles that, uh, about this to any conflict, whether it's a conflict in our marriage, in our families, in our workplace, even with friends. And so what I want us to see here is just simply three, three aspects of this passage the first I want us to look at is in these first five verses, he talks about the wars, the wars that are going on. It's interesting that he uses that term. He says, from whence come wars and fightings among you. Uh, those terms in the original language were really uh, portrayed for nations fighting each other. You know, the Greeks and the Philistines and the Romans and all these people fighting. And, you know, this, these uh, people had a lot of fighting around. We have a lot of wars and fighting around today and it's talking about that sort of thing. So they're pretty serious, aren't they? When we think of what's going on with North, North Korea uh, and potentially what could happen with North Korea, we think about what's going on in, with ISIS and, and Syria and all that sort of stuff. Uh, these are not just little things. They're major. I think what James is doing here is reminding them of the seriousness of the issue. These aren't just little bickers. They're not just little disagreements and disturbances they are wars in fact they often escalate into full-on wars and you know that any conflict usually starts small you don't just it doesn't just blow up out of nowhere it seems that sometimes but usually it starts with smaller things he immediately points to the source of this and we shouldn't be surprised because james has been doing this all along uh, he comes keep, keeps going back to the heart issues he says that these fights that are going on outwardly are coming, uh, really their source is in something that's going on inwardly. And when he talks about these lusts, he's used the words lust, but it's really talking about just desires. You want what you want and desires within our hearts. When he says there in King James, in the war in your members, he's not talking about the church members. He's saying within ourselves, within our body, we have an internal struggle that we have. And that internal struggle manifests itself outwardly. We've already seen that with our speech, how we're told that what comes out of our mouths is really what is abiding in our heart. And he gives this sequence here. And he says, you, you lust and you kill, you desire to have and you have not, you fight, you war, you have not because you ask not. And here's the sequence. He says, you know, Really, at the heart of these conflicts is this desire for what you want. You want your own way. You want uh, to have what you want. And you can't get it. So you get frustrated. And you get frustrated that you can't get what you want. So the result is you fight with others because you want your way and you're not getting it. 
And then he says, and you still don't get your way. Uh, and that person doesn't get their way. And so the whole thing is rinse and repeat. Do it again. And it just goes on and on and on. And this is what happens with conflicts. If we don't resolve the conflicts in our lives, they just fester and they continue and they continue and they keep rearing their ugly head. And you may have had ongoing conflicts uh, with others that have been going on for years, never really fully resolved because there's always something else that comes up. And, and, you've, and the idea with this is that you've got two parties often that want what they want. They want their way. They're not willing to budge on that. They may for a little while, but in their hearts they're saying, I'm still not happy. I didn't get what I want. And so that causes frustration, and the frustration causes fights, and then it continues on and on. And this sequence, he says, you know, you're fighting and warring. You, you can't obtain it, and yet, you know, you're going on with this. Well, there is a solution to it, and he mentions it there. He says, you have not because you ask not. Now, he's not talking about asking each other, can I get this from you? He's saying, you don't get a resolution to this because you don't take it to God in prayer. You see, what God wants us to do in resolving this, and we'll be going through some of the ways out of this today, but firstly, he wants us to come to him. And he wants us, as we sang today, to tell it to Jesus, to come to him in prayer. When we come to him in prayer... Sometimes you actually do that. You go, well, okay, I'm going to pray about this situation. He says, but you don't receive an answer. You don't receive what you want because you still are praying, God, give me what I want. You're asking for, not for God's help. You're asking for God's stamp of approval. You know, God, I'm right. They're wrong. Rubber stamp it, please. Show them they're wrong. Deal with them. Right? When we come into him in prayer, what we need to do is to say, not my will, God, but your will. That's what Jesus Christ said. We've already seen at the start of this book that it says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. The first thing we can come to is say, is say, God, give me wisdom. I'm tired of this round and round and round and fighting with each other. Something's not right, and I need your help with that. I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. I need your help. So we ask him, he says, you know, we can ask him, give me wisdom. The other thing we can say is, as David said, search me, O God, and try me. You know, before we start looking at the other person and what is going on in their life and what they're doing, we can say, God, show me where I need to change. Show me where, where the, the areas in which maybe I am blinded to them because I'm just so focused on getting what I want that I'm forgetting that there are things... Uh, that there's issues with my life. And so really part of that is humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, you know everything about this situation. Understand every conflict has at least two sides. You know, it says in Proverbs 18 that he is, that is, is the first one to speak, seems just in his cause. And then the neighbour comes along and gives his side. There's always more than one side to a story and we always want to say, well, hey, we're, we're right in this or we think we are. God, however, knows, knows everything. He knows the whole situation and he knows exactly even what the solution is. And so what we need to do is to come to God and say, first, we need wisdom. God, show me, Lord, the areas in my life where I need to change. And then the other thing we're told is to pray for the other person. Not get them, Lord, you know, deal with them, Lord, but, but pray that you could understand their, what they're going through in their situation. Because often we get into these conflicts with each other 
and where the reason that we continue sort of butt up against each other and we have these fights and wars and things that are there, he says, are because uh, we're not thinking about what the other person's going through. Now, it's not to say that everything that the other person does is right, but when we can get the perspective of the other person, when we can say to God, show me why they're hurting, show me why they're going through that struggle, certainly will give us compassion and will help us to go to God and ask to pray for them that God would minister in their lives. The thing we need to remember is that you know, our responsibility is not to change others. We need to allow God to change us and, and then allow God also to change the other person. And so prayer is such an important thing in terms of a solution of these wars, but what they've been told here is that they're not using that in the right way. They're basically still, the idea here is that he says, you're asking amiss. The way that you're coming to God is not really accomplishing anything because you're not really coming to him. You're just coming to him because you go, oh, I need to pray. And that's sometimes what we do as Christians. We sort of go, okay, I know this is a struggle. I should pray about it. God, fix them. Right? And, and uh, God's just like, okay, if that's what you want to say, but we're just going to have to go around the whole cycle one more time because that's how it happens and with that. So what that also tells us is that we're not just at war with each other. And verses 4 and 5 actually tell us that we're in this situation, when we're thinking that way, we're at war with God. He uses pretty strong terms here. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. If we think of the Old Testament, God said that uh, Israel was his chosen people. It was like his bride, so to speak. It was referred to in the Old Testament. And when Israel went away from the Lord, they followed after other gods. When they followed their own ways, he says, you are committing spiritual adultery. It's like, you know, you are supposed to be my chosen one, my special people. And you say, I don't care. I'm just going to go after other gods. I'm going to follow other things. And that's, he says, that's equivalent of you being married to one and then saying, I don't care. I'm going to go after other women or other men, right? He says that is an adulterous relationship. And he says, now, in the New Testament, we have the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is pictured, and the church is, uh, all believers are pictured as the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ, God has purchased us, and we know that God is preparing for himself in this church, in this age that we're in, what he refers to as his bride. And it seems an unusual statement, but we know that what it's really talking about is is a relationship of, um, of oneness, that we should be one with Jesus Christ. When we chase after and follow our own things, we're really following after the world. And it's that, as we read last week, that earthly, central, you know, here and now, what I want sort of wisdom. And he says, that's actually of the devil, that's devilish, right? So you're really following after another god. So he then says to them, if you are following in that way, you're at an enemy of God. If you're a friend of the world, and we're not saying friends with people in the world, we're just saying if you long after those desires, the way that sort of thinking that is rejecting God. And we read from Romans 1 last week and we went through that passage and you can read it again to see what the consequence of rejecting God is. We're seeing that in our society today all around us. The hatred of not only God but God's people and anything that God has considered sacred, marriage, sex, gender, all those things, it's just disregarded, an enemy. And then he comes to verse 5 and do you think, and he, he's talking about that, you know, you're, you're, an, you're an enemy of God if you're in friends with the world. 
He goes on here to say, Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? There's different actual interpretations of this. One it actually says that is that, that our spirit in us is always goes to jealousy. And that's kind of true because we're told that the heart is deceitful and wicked because of our sin nature. We struggle with that and that it is something that uh, we continue to lust to. So that is a, a, a valid uh, interpretation of it. But there is another uh, interpretation, which uh, is the Spirit referring to the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is the Holy Spirit that dwells in you is jealously desires of you. And that's true as well. You know, God says, I am a jealous God. He doesn't want us to have any other gods after him. And, and maybe that fits in with the context a bit better because we're talking about adulterers and uh, adulterers and adulteresses with that as well. I believe uh, probably the second one is a good uh, explanation. God has a desire for us and that we shouldn't think that it's, oh, it doesn't matter if we walk away from God this time and we just do our own thing and then we come back and we walk away. Think about in a marriage relationship, if, if the, uh, the husband or wife says, hey, I'm leaving and goes off and then comes back and then I'm leaving. Remember the Old Testament Hosea. You know, he was told to, to marry this woman and she ended up going off into adultery and God used that as a picture of what Israel was doing. And it would go off again and, of course, he went and actually rescued her in the end. But there's a couple of times where she just went away off into adultery, came back, went away off into adultery. And he's saying, you can't do that. You cannot just keep living like that. God doesn't want you to be like, oh, yeah, I'm all for you one minute and then, oh, I'll go off and do this. God is jealous. He wants your heart. And this is really what it's coming back to with that. So that's our wars, the first part, the, those first five verses. The, the second thing I want to jump to down to verses 11 and 12, because I'll come back to the middle verses. And that is our words. And we've already looked at our words in uh, James chapter 3. But he says here in chapters 11 and 12, Speak not evil of one another, brethren. Whenever you get into conflicts and fights, there's words flying around and no doubt things are going to be said. He says, speak not evil of one another, not to one another. Of course, that's a given when you're fighting, people say that. But what he's saying is don't, don't talk about other people in an evil way to each other. Don't spread rumours, gossip, criticism around uh, to one another. You shouldn't do that. And he gives four reasons why we shouldn't. He says, speak, uh, again, not evil one another, brethren. And he, several times in this next verse, he says, brethren, he that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law. First thing we need to remember is our relationship with one another. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Why? Because we have the same heavenly father. When we uh, have trusted in Christ, we enter into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and God is our, now our Heavenly Father. That makes us spiritual children. And so we are brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters should get along. Didn't our mum and dads tell us that when we were young? Now, of course, they don't always, but they should. And, you know, there was a lot, I understand there's a lot of family conflicts. But he's saying because of your relationship with one another, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be um, criticising and arguing and particularly speaking evil of the other person. Secondly, he says that when you do that, you speak evil of the law. What law is he talking about? Well, I believe he's already given uh, us a bit of a picture of that earlier in James. He's talked about this royal law of, of loving one another. 
Right? And when you, God has commanded us, and Jesus Christ said, love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you have love one for another, it's an overarching theme that we see in the New Testament. The, the picture of the church is supposed to be a love for one another. When you speak evil of another, you're basically saying that command doesn't... It, it, I don't, I don't uh, basically agree with it. You know, I'm speaking evil of that command. Who cares? Which says we're supposed to love one another. I'll say what I want to say. He's saying you have a disregard for that, uh, that God's law and God's command with that. And in doing that also, it says you speak, you're speaking evil uh, of, of God. Uh, you need to, we need to have a reverence for God. We need to understand that there is one lawgiver and one judge. When we speak evil of others and, and God says that we shouldn't, he says, you're setting yourself up, and we saw this in chapter 2 as well, as a judge, you are putting your assessment on the value of a person uh, one over another. Right? And he says that there is one lawgiver and one judge. Who's that? God. So you're not God. <laughs> I'm not God. And so we shouldn't be judging. Now, just to clarify this, because, you know, Jesus did said that, he says, we're not to judge not one another, that you be not judged. But then later on he does say about judging false teachers. There are times when we need to, but what we're talking about is looking at what they, what, when we're talking about judgment here, and assessment, we're assessing their teaching and their activities and what, what is the result of that, rather than saying you are a more valuable or less valuable person. God says we're all valuable, we're all um, in, in his sight. And so for us to do that, we're essentially saying that we are judging others and we want to take the place of God. The last one there with our words is that we not only is our relationship, not only is it is our regard for the for his law and how we reverence God. But lastly, as he says there, who art thou? There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. That's God, obviously. Who art thou that judgest another? Let's face it, we're not in any position to, to judge uh, because we're not sinless. We have our own faults as well. And often when we're assessing others and we're looking at that, we turn a blind eye to the, the things in our own lives. And God's saying, you, you, you're not in a position to be that sort of judge. You need to leave that to God. And this is why the real answer for us really is to keep coming back to God in prayer and saying, God, look, show me, give me some wisdom in this situation. Help me to understand the other person. Now, I'm not saying that you can't, there's times where people need correction, there's rebuke. We see that in the Bible. But... The Bible also tells us if we have a situation, we should go to the person in that situation, not go to everybody else around us. This is how conflicts and wars uh, fight and, and carry on. So that's, that's our words. We've seen our words and our words. Now, I really, verse 6 to 10, as we finish up, I just want us to consider how do we get out of this situation? What's the way out? How do we... We know that we have these conflicts in our lives, relationships, marriages, families, even in a church... What is the solution? Verse 6 gives us this wonderful um, contrast to this. This is what's going on. There's all these fightings. You're at war with God. But God is offering an alternative. He's offering a cycle, a way out of this cycle of strife. 
He gives more grace. Oh, how we need God's grace. (laughs) What is God's grace? Well, it's his undeserved favour. You know, we are told in Romans 6 that we are sinners, you know, and we know that throughout the scripture it tells we're sinners. By nature, we're born as sinners, but also by what we do. And that we cannot save or atone for ourselves. We need God's grace. And God says, I will offer you my favour. You have my help. Help is available from God. We, we don't need to say, I can't help it. It's just the way I am. Nothing's going to change. No, God wants us to change and he's actually going to give us help to do that. Help that we can't get from anywhere else. Help that we don't deserve. And how does he give this? He says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is our responsibility. God says, I'm here, I'm standing here, I'm willing to offer you help in resolving the conflicts in your life. You need to stop resisting me. Don't resist God. Don't be proud. God resists the proud. He's going to resist you if you're proud. If you say, I'm, it's not my problem, it's not me, it's the other person, I'm not the issue here. As we continue to think about that, then we are... We're resisting God. Think about where that came from. Satan, I will be as the most high. All of these things that Satan lifts himself up. When we are manifesting that, we're essentially acting according to Satan. We're following the devil and God says, I'm going to resist you. You're not going to um, get your way in this. I'm not going to let you get your way. In fact, more importantly, you're not going to get my help, which you so much need. But he gives grace to the humble Now, this isn't like, okay, God, I will humble myself in order to get grace from you. What it makes us realize is we need help from God. And the only way we're we're going to get that is to say, God, I need your help. You know, I need the help from you. As Jesus um, prayed and as we need to remember, not my will, but yours. Jesus didn't, Jesus was never proud. He didn't have sin, but he still humbled himself. We read about that in Philippians 2. He humbled himself became obedient to, the, to death, even the death of the cross. In 1 Peter 5, 5, it says here, really echoing that passage in James and repeating the same verse again, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another. Right? What we're wanting here is not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, it says there again, and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. We need to stop resisting God, or, you know, that God will resist us. We need to start resisting the devil. And we're told that we do that. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We do that through submission to God. We need to humble ourselves. You know, you can, if you say to God, well, humble me, well, he can use circumstances to humble me. It might be quite painful. But in fact, what he's saying is, no, hum- humility is not you do it for me because that's pride again. Right? It's, it's me submitting myself to God. Submit ourselves to God, resist the devil by submitting ourselves to God and he will flee. That's a promise. That's a wonderful promise. You're being uh, attacked, you're being thwarted by the devil, you're, these things are going on in your life. Submit to God. The promise is that the devil will flee from you. Why? Because when you're fully submitted to God, he has no influence over you, he has no power over you, and if he has no power from you, over you, he says, I'm out of here. 
I can't. I, I'm not going to work in that. And so, and this really likens where we see, read in the New Testament about putting off and putting on, about yielding to the Spirit, uh, walking in the Spirit and not walking into the flesh. These all tie in with the same things here. So we need to resist the devil. First Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is as a roaring lion, walking around, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist? Steadfast in the faith, knowing the same afflictions accomplished you that accomplished in the brethren in the world. Everybody goes through this. We all struggle with these same struggles. He's saying resist. Resist in the faith. Trust in God that he will work out the solution and he'll work in your life. And finally, we see here uh, the, the, the other part of the answer and it really is to draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. If you've ever been out and looked across, imagine looking out uh, across the countryside and you see in the distance, we don't have huge mountains in Australia, but we have big hills. I don't know if you've ever been overseas. First time I went to Canada, I was just amazed at the size of these mountains. They're huge. But, you know, from afar off, those mountains actually look very small and you look very big. You know, I can put my thumb up and I can cover up one of those mountains if I'm far enough away from it. And, and I think, like, you know... So if I, it's, it's like with God. If I'm far off from God, I think I'm very big. And, and, you know, the situations in life, I tend to magnify myself. You know, the closer you get to one of those massive mountains, the more awestruck you are. And then you stand at the foot of this mountain or even hear some of the big hills or cliffs down here and you stand and you just look how tall it is and you're just looking up and up and up and you just, you're in awe, you are humbled. That's what it means to draw near to God. When we draw near to God, it will humble us. It will make us realize, wow, what an amazing God that he is and how, how little and small and insignificant in some ways I am and yet God loves me. Not only is it like, coming to a big mountain, it's also coming towards a, a beautiful and shining light. And in First Timothy, it talks about God dwelling in light. He's not a light, but dwelling in light that no man can approach. And the idea is as we become closer to God and we see his purity, his holiness. How do we do that? Well, we come to him in prayer. We come to him as we read and study him in the word and we know about him. We just take time to be with God. And, and as we get closer to him, and uh, what ha- not only do we realize how awesome and how big he is, also we realize how pure and holy he is. And this is where it goes on to say, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, be afflicted and mourn. It's essentially saying to us, when we come close to God, we realize we think we're pure, we think we're clean, we think we're righteous, and we come to God and we see his righteousness and we go, woe is me, like uh, Isaiah did when he saw God in the temple, uh, he saw a, a, a manifestation of God, he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. It's the same here. When we draw near to God, we realize our own sinfulness. And God says we need to do that. We need to recognize that he is holy and we are not, and yet he is working in our lives. And the wonderful thing is that when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, when we come to him, this awesome God, this holy God, this pure God, and we see how wonderful he is. He, he's not chasing us away. You know, in our sinfulness, in our uh, insignificance, in, in one way, we tend to look at it and go, we want to run away from that. But God says, no, run to me. Humble yourselves and I will lift you up. What an amazing thing that the God of the universe, that this God would stoop down and lift us up. 
And in, in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, he again says that humble ourselves uh, therefore under the mighty hand of God, reminding us how powerful God is, that he may exalt you. He will lift you up in due time. As we come to him, we need to realize that God's timing is what's important here, not my timing. You know, we often uh, would like to see things resolved quickly in our lives. We'd like to see the end to the trials and the struggles. But God says, you know, it's okay. I'm holding on to you. Sit tight. I'll lift you up in due time. I'll exalt you in due time. You just humble yourself. You know, all, as, as we've said, I said before, all accounts will be settled on departure, it sometimes says on out at your motels and hotels and stuff like that. God is righteous. He knows if there's evil being done, he will deal with that. The wonderful thing in our life is that we, although we deserve uh, judgment from God, what we're told is that because of Jesus Christ, because he took the judgment that was due us, God sees us as clean. Even though it's talking here about purifying and cleansing our hearts, we need to continually come to him and confess our sin, but not for salvation. God says, you are already in my sight perfect. Why? Because I look upon my son, Jesus Christ, and I look upon you as my child and say, you're righteous because of him, not because of you. And that's the wonderful thing of the gospel, isn't it? that the answer to this problem is the righteousness that comes only in Jesus Christ. As we understand that, God wants us to be changed, to transform. God wants us to become more like him, more like Jesus Christ. And that, is, uh, and that really is the solution to the conflicts we have. Just going, as we close this morning, going back to that passage that we saw, what's wrong with this picture? Plenty. But it's not without it there is a solution to that what do these people need in this Bellevue Baptist Church what we need God's grace and we also need to submit ourselves to him we need the humility that comes only from Jesus Christ let's pray thank you Lord for our time together today and it is uh, every time we come to this book of James since we've been doing recently Lord it does confront us and Lord we know that of course, we don't, have not had punch-ups in this church and things like that. Lord, I'm thankful that we have had not many disputes in this church, but I know that there's been times when we've had um, altercations with each other, maybe disagreements, maybe there's been some, some things there. Lord, I thank you that you've given us a solution to that, that we can come to you, Lord, that we need your grace. And Lord, we not, not only need that, this church we know we need that in our lives and our families and our marriages or often the places where this manifests itself even greater uh, lord we thank you for the help that you so freely offer and give us if we would only come to you we pray lord that we would indeed draw near to you lord help us to block out the influences of the world uh, in our minds and our thinking. Help us to saturate ourselves with the knowledge of you, both through scripture and just through silence and through solitude sometimes, Lord, just being alone with you and allowing your Holy Spirit to reveal to us how marvelous and how wonderful you are. And Lord, that you would then, that we would then listen to you about the areas in which we need to change. And Lord, all of us, we know we need to change, but we thank you that 
that you've begun a work in us and you'll continue to perform it until the day that we go to be with you. So we're grateful for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.